Thanks for listening to the Journey Christian Church podcast. We're on a mission to make disciples who love God, love people, and serve the world. Our prayer is that this message encourages you today. And remember, Journey is a place where everybody's welcome, nobody's perfect, and through Jesus, anything is possible. Well, today we come to the last message in our series on the life of Joseph from the book of Genesis that we have called Turning Trauma into Triumph. And truthfully, I hate to see this come to an end. I have absolutely loved teaching this series of messages to you. There is so much more that I could have said and really wanted to say about the things we learned from Joseph, but we need to move on with some other important series as we get to the close of this year. But I promise you, I will come back again to the life of Joseph in the future to teach about some of these things that we've not gotten to in this series. Well, as you know, this is a time of year when people will go to one of our local theme parks or a movie theater or even a local farm and pay someone to scare them spitless. And and frankly, I've never understood that. Uh, In my experience, I have found that life is scary enough on its own. I don't have to go looking for scary things. They seem to come looking for me. And I certainly don't need to pay people to induce more fear in me. One of the most dominant plot lines of many of these horror experiences is the idea that someone you think is dead really isn't. And they find a way of coming back over and over again. And when they do, you better watch out. They don't come back to forgive and reconcile. They come back to wreak havoc and seek vengeance. As the story of Joseph comes to its dramatic conclusion, we see Joseph's brothers are shockingly confronted with the one they thought was dead or as they later describe him, one who is no more. Little did they know that the little brother that they'd brutalized and betrayed and secretly sold into slavery over 20 years ago was now running the most dominant empire of their day. And through a series of heartbreaking twists and harrowing turns that at times can leave you scratching your head in bewilderment, We see how God, who is the real hero of Joseph's story, brings about one of the most moving family reconciliation and reunion scenes in all of Scripture, indeed, in all of literature. So, we pick up with Joseph where we left him last week. He's second in command in all of Egypt because he rightly interpreted Pharaoh's disturbing dreams of unprecedented agricultural abundance followed by years of unrelenting widespread famine. The famine in Egypt reached as far north as Canaan on the Mediterranean coast. It's about 200 miles away. And at the beginning of chapter 42, it's as though the spirit-directed lens of the scripture leaves Egypt and shifts our attention back on Canaan the land of Joseph's family. Jacob, 
Joseph's father, who's been led to believe by Joseph's brothers that he is dead, somehow had heard that there was grain for sale in Egypt. And I love how the writer of Genesis masterfully and concisely gives us some insight into what the family dynamics are back at home. We've watched over the last few weeks, what happens to Joseph in Egypt. But we wonder, were things any better with Joseph's family back in Canaan? Not really. Let's read from the beginning, Genesis chapter 42. When Jacob learned that there was grain in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you just keep looking at each other? Doesn't that sound just like a grumpy old man talking to his sons? Why are you sitting around twiddling your thumbs, boys? We're starving. We need food. Get off your fannies and find us some. Sounds just like an old man. He continued, I've heard that there's grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some for us so that we may live and not die. Then 10 of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain from Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with the others because he was afraid that harm might come to them and were led to see another interesting insight, very revealing insight into the family dynamics post-Joseph. I think Jacob had his suspicions about the brother's account of Joseph's death for years. Something didn't sit right with him about it. And he was wary of their attitude toward Benjamin. He therefore sent the 10 remaining brothers on their way, minus Benjamin, and without any inkling of what he was doing, he set in motion a train of events that would take his family eventually into Egypt and shape the future of his nation. Let's set the stage for what's about to happen. These 10 brothers were now middle-aged men with families of their own. They probably never mentioned their dark deed of violence and betrayal against Joseph, at least not out loud. Sometimes in their dreams, they may have seen that young face in the bottom of that cistern and heard him pleading for his life, but in their conscious moments, their consciences slept with that secret. They certainly didn't know that the brother they sold into slavery 20 years earlier was now prime minister of Egypt. All they knew was they had to go to Egypt to bring back food for their starving households to obey their aging father's request. Conversely, Joseph knew virtually nothing about the whereabouts or the welfare of his family back in Canaan. Maybe in unguarded moments, alone with his thoughts, he must have wondered about them, and particularly about his little brother Benjamin. Was he alive? Did the brothers do something to him as treacherous as they'd done to Joseph. Was the father still living? Had the famine taken a toll on them as it had on many other surrounding countries? All those questions and more are about to be answered. Let's pick up the story again. Verse five, chapter 42. So Israel's sons were among those who went to buy grain for there was famine in the land of Canaan also. Now Joseph was the governor of the land the person who sold grain to all its people. So when Joseph's brothers arrived, they bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. As soon as Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them, but he pretended to be a stranger and spoke harshly to them. Where do you come from, he asked. 
from the land of Canaan, they replied, to buy food. Although Joseph recognized his brothers, they did not recognize him. Then he remembered his dreams about them. Let your mind soak this scene in for just a moment. All 10 of the older sons of Jacob, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulon, Gad, Asher, Dan, and Naphtali are ushered into the presence of the prime minister of Egypt. The surroundings must have seemed surreal to these country boys from Canaan as they stood before the man who controls the world's food supply, who literally held life and death in his hands. And we could see how overwhelmed they were because in that moment, their immediate response to being in the presence of this powerful man was to bow with their faces to the ground and not a polite little English curtsy, but a full-on face-to-the-ground prostrated bow with no clue that the clean-shaven Egyptian aristocrat before them was their long-lost little brother. This is so good. Wow. It's no surprise they didn't recognize Joseph. Joseph was 17 when they saw him last. Now he's in his late 30s. Well, a person's appearance changes a lot over a period like that. But Joseph immediately recognizes them. You know why? You don't forget the faces of your abusers. Even though they were bearded, unlike the clean-shaven Egyptians and wore the garb of Canaan and spoke Hebrew and had two more decades of aging on themselves, in an instant, three things happened as soon as Joseph recognized them. He remembered dreams of his teenage years. He concealed his identity. And he began the process of probing their conscience. John Lennox writes, it's hard to imagine the swirling mixture of emotions that affected Joseph as it dawned on him that the 10 bearded men bunched in the crowd in front of him were his brothers whom he'd not seen for well over 20 years. He watched them bow. And in that moment, a boyhood dream became a reality, yet not quite. Every detail of that dream would have been indelibly etched on his memory. In it, he had seen 11 sheaves bow down, but he saw only 10 men bound in front of him. Where was his brother, Benjamin? How was he to deal with these men who caused him so much pain and suffering? Once they'd been in a position of power over him, now the situation was reversed. Was there a right action for him to take? Although Joseph recognized his brothers, they did not recognize him. Then he remembered his dreams about them, and he said to them, you are spies. You have come to see where our land is unprotected. No, my Lord, they answered. Your servants have come to buy food. We're all the sons of one man. Your servants are honest men, not spies. And when they said they were honest men, you can imagine it takes everything inside of Joseph from Burton out. Yeah, right. <laughs> but he doesn't. Instead, he begins what appears to be a compelling and complicated game of cat and mouse with them. Three times Joseph accuses them of being spies. They deny it each time. But then in one of their responses, they unwittingly give him some information he desperately wanted. But they replied, your servants 
were 12 brothers, the sons of one man who lives in the land of Canaan. The youngest is now with our father. And Joseph must have thought, thank God, dad is still alive. And baby brother is safe. He's with him. But then they add this dark reference. And one is no more. And Joseph thought, so they must have told dad that I was killed. So far as his family is concerned, he no longer existed. Except in their guilty consciences, as we will see. But the one who was supposedly no more has become something more than they can possibly imagine. Now, Joseph clearly has the upper hand in everything that's going to happen from this point on. He's obtained the information about his father and his little brother that he wanted. But now he wants to observe the condition of his older brother's hearts. Were they still hateful, dangerous men? Were they still liars? Were they as jealous of his brother Benjamin as they had been of him? If he discloses his identity before he discovers the current state of their hearts, they would be shocked and most likely express sorrow. But how would he know if they were sincere? Joseph shows incredible wisdom and remarkable restraint, and he devises an ingenious way to test his brothers. You claim to be honest men, do you? We'll see about that. He says to them in verse 15, and this is how you will be tested. As surely as Pharaoh lives, you will not leave this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of your number to get your brother. The rest of you will be kept in prison so that your words may be tested to see if you're telling the truth. If you're not, as surely as Pharaoh lives, you're spies, and he put them all in custody for three days. What do you think Joseph is doing during those three days? Personally, I think he's struggling with feelings of resentment and revenge. I mean, after all, Joseph is human, just like the rest of us. He had to be thinking, this is my chance to make them pay for what they did to me. Furthermore, Joseph had spent years in prison as an indirect result of these guys' actions. It wouldn't hurt them to spend a few days. But after wrestling with thoughts of payback, he changes his strategy to see if it's possible to put back his family together again. On the third day, Joseph said to them, do this and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers stay here in prison while the rest of you go and take your grain back. You see, Joseph is kind of, he's wrestled to a new strategy now. At first he said, all of you are gonna stay, one of you is gonna go back. Now he said, one of you is gonna stay and the rest of you go back. But you must bring your youngest brother to me so that your words may be verified and that you may not die. This they proceeded to do. And then we see the first evidence that their hard hearts are starting to soften. Their seared consciences are beginning to be activated. They said to one another, surely we're being punished because of our brother. We saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life, but we would not listen. That's why this distress has come upon us. Reuben replied, Did, didn't I tell you not to sin against the boy? But you wouldn't listen. Now we must give an accounting for his blood. They did not realize that Joseph could understand them since he was using 
an interpreter. In the original Hebrew language of this text, all of the we words are in the emphatic voice. In other words, we are guilty. We saw how distressed he was. We would not listen. We must now give an account. Friends, listen to me. The first step toward restoring a broken relationship is to take responsibility for the harm you caused. The brothers did not blame their father for showing favoritism all those years. They didn't blame Joseph for being arrogant and a whistleblower. They didn't diminish the wrong by saying, well, we were too young to know any better. They used the right pronoun and the right emphasis. We are responsible. One writer says their conscience had awakened mightily during these three days of incarceration. They feel that a just retribution has come upon them and are apparently all of one mind in regard to the matter. They admit guilt, the only verbal acknowledgement of sin in the book of Genesis. If you wonder how Joseph felt when he heard these words that they didn't think he could understand, we see it in his response. He turned away from them and began to weep. But then he came back and spoke to them again. This is the first time that we're told that Joseph weeps, but it won't be the last. And I think this reveals something of his heart as well. You see, this is scarcely the reaction of a cruel, vindictive man toying with his brothers, reveling in their pain as he seeks to extract maximum revenge for what they'd done to him. This is much more the attitude of a man who wanted to forgive and wanted to reconcile. He wanted to tell them who he was, but he couldn't do it yet. Why not? Because Joseph knew true reconciliation always involves repentance. True reconciliation always involves repentance. And I'm not talking about a sorrow because you got caught, but a change in behavior because you got convicted. He had Simeon taken from them and bound before their eyes. Why did Joseph pick Simeon to stay behind in custody? Reuben was the oldest. Reuben represented the future figurehead of the family, but perhaps Joseph remembered Reuben was the only one who tried to intervene on his behalf when his brothers brutalized him. For whatever reason, he selected Simeon to remain behind. The rest of them load up their donkeys with grain and they head back to Canaan realizing if they ever want to see their brother Simeon again or get more grain, they need to bring their baby brother Benjamin back with them. But as they headed home, something strange happens. They stop at a rest stop right off the Nile toll road. And they open up their grain bags and they found the silver they used to pay for the grain still in their sack. That would be like paying your mortgage payment and the next day you see it credited back to your account. Has that ever happened to you? <laughs> Me neither. I just wondered if it happened to anybody else. If it is, I'm going to switch lenders. <laughs> Genesis 42, 28 says, when each of them opened their bag and they saw their silver, their hearts sank. They turn to each other. Listen, what is this that God has done to us? Now, not only are they feeling the full brunt of their own guilt, they're also sensing God's hand is somehow in this. And they ask each other, what is God doing? And yet I want you to notice something so important. It's easy to miss. This comes about because they became the recipients of undeserved expression of grace. They became the recipient of an undeserved expression of grace. These guys deserve no grain from Joseph. They certainly didn't deserve to get their money back. 
They deserve punishment and imprisonment for what they'd done to their brother, yet they wound up with freedom, a full sack of grain, and a full return of their payment. Years before, they had received silver for Joseph. Now they were receiving silver from Joseph, although they did not know it at the time. That's a picture of pure grace, but they hadn't seen anything yet. So the brothers returned home from a long, confusing, convicting trip minus another brother. Friends, if there was ever a time to come clean and get everything out in the open with their dad, boy, this was it. But apparently they didn't. They just came back home thinking, dodged a bullet there, didn't we? Tough break about Simeon. Hope he's okay with that weird Egyptian dude. And months go by, and they use up all their grain. And Daddy Jacob says, boys, you got to go back to Egypt, get some more grain. And they're thinking, oh, no, we don't. We don't want to go back there again, ever. But they got no choice. And Jacob insists they return. And Judah speaks up. Verse 43, verse 3. Judah says, the man. By the way, you ever wonder where that phrase came from? The man. The man is keeping me down. Remember that show from the 70s called Chico and the Man? You're old like me if you do. <laughs> Judas says, let me explain something to you about how Egypt works, Dad. Down there, there's Pharaoh, and there's the man, and you don't mess with the man. He scared us to death. But Judas said to him, the man warned us solemnly, you will not see my face again unless your brother's with you. If you will send our brother along with us, we will go down and buy food for you. But if you will not send him, we will not go down because the man said to us, you will not see my face again unless your brother's with you. Israel or Jacob replied, why did you bring this trouble on me by telling the man you had another brother? They replied, the man questioned us closely about ourselves and our family. Is your father still living? He asked, do you have another brother? We simply answered his questions. How were we to know he would say, bring your brother down here, dad? And Jacob has to be thinking, let me get this straight. Last time I saw Joseph, he was with you guys. Last time I saw Simeon, he was with you guys. And now you want me to trust you to take my new favorite son to a foreign country to see a strange guy who asked a lot of questions about our family and accused you of being spies? I don't think so. Then Judah said to Israel, his father, Send the boy along with me, and we will go at once so that you and we and you and our children may live and not die. I myself will guarantee his safety. You can hold me personally responsible for him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him here before you, I will bear the blame before you all my life. Now, listen, this is a marker. This is an important to keep in mind this exchange between Judah and Jacob. As we see what later unfolds between Judah and Joseph when the brothers return to Egypt. This is a key statement. So they head back to Egypt, this time with Benjamin. And extra money and a big old Canaanite swag bag to give to Joseph. They're trying to do anything they can think of to get on the good side of this intimidating Egyptian official who seems to have an unusual interest in their family. And Joseph makes arrangements to see them in his private house, which had to seem a little weird to them. And when he sees his baby brother, Benjamin, that he hasn't seen in over 22 years, he totally loses it. And he runs into his bedroom and he cries his heart out. 
Listen to me. I don't care how brave you are. I don't care how courageous you are. I don't care how resilient you are. The best among us encounter those times in life when we can no longer restrain our emotions. Charles Swindoll writes, can you imagine the scene? All of a sudden, the handsome bronze leader of millions has rushed to his bedroom, collapsed into sobs. All those years passed in review, all the loneliness, all the loss, all the seasons and birthdays and significant occasions without his family. It was too much to contain. His tears ran. He heaved with great sobs. And all of a sudden, he was a little boy again, missing his daddy. Joseph arranges a dinner for his brothers, and to their astonishment, they're seated in their exact birth order. Now listen, these were grown men. They were all born in fairly rapid succession. It would have been impossible for a stranger to guess their ages accurately, and the probability of getting it right by chance is negligible. This was uncanny. How could he possibly know that? And what does all this mean? Joseph is deliberately recreating something here. When the portions were served to them from Joseph's table, Benjamin's portion was five times as much as anyone else's. Why did he supersize Benjamin's meal in the midst of a famine when food is so precious? Listen, one more time in this masterful story, a younger brother is clearly being treated as a favorite. And Joseph watches to see how the others will respond. They say nothing. Meal goes on. He asked for more information about their dad, their families. Finally, they finish the meal. They get the grain that they came for. They get Simeon back. They're leaving town fast, and they're thinking, this is great. We got Simeon back. We got Benjamin. We got grain. Thought, sure, God was about to drop the hammer on us back there, but I guess that's still waiting out there somewhere. One thing is for sure, we're never going back there again. But unbeknownst to them, Joseph had one of his servants hide a valuable piece of his personal property, a special cup. In Benjamin's sack, when they get on the outskirts of town, he sends his security team after them. They inform them, somebody stole from the prime minister. We need to check your grain sacks. They say, check away. We didn't steal anything. They start with the oldest. They work their way down to Benjamin's sack. And lo and behold, there it is. And you're thinking, we were so close. (laughs) We were that close to getting away. Now we know God's in this, but he's messing with it. This is weird. So they all load up. They head back to Joseph's palace. They appear before Joseph, and they say, we didn't do it. And they start defending themselves. Joseph I love this. Joseph says, no problem. No problem. I'm a fair man. The only one I want to punish is the one in whose bag my cup was found. The rest of you, free to go. Are you paying attention? Watch. And here are these same brothers. One more time. With their younger brother. Whom they know their father loves best. And they can be rid of him. One more time. Only this time. They don't even have to do anything wrong. They don't have to kill him. They don't have to sell him. All they have to do is not lift a finger. And just like that. The favorite vanishes from their life. Once more. Robert Stacks gets it exactly right when he says Joseph has now decided to put his brothers to the final test. He will place them in a position where they will be strongly tempted to treat Benjamin as they had treated him. 
The point of Joseph's trial is that repentance is only complete when one knows that if he were placed in the same position, he would not act in the way he had acted before. So Judah, the one who came up with the whole plot to sell Joseph into slavery and the cover-up to deceive their dad, the one who's most responsible for what Joseph has endured, first as a slave, then as a prince, that guy. He stands up, he approaches Joseph, not knowing it's him, and he says, pardon your servant, my Lord. Let me speak a word to my Lord. And Judah basically says something like this to Joseph. We showed up here the first time to get grain for our family. You accused us of being spies. We tried to be as honest with you as we could. You asked about our dad. We told you he was alive. You asked about any other brothers. We brought our baby brother here to meet you just like you asked. We've answered every question. We've done everything you told us to, but sir, we cannot leave here without our brother Benjamin. Take a look at what Judah says. Now then, please let your servant remain here as my Lord's slave in place of the boy. And let the boy return with his brothers. How can I go back to my father if the boy's not with me? No, do not let me see the misery that would come on my father. And for the first time in scripture, we see the possibility of a substitutionary act of suffering on behalf of someone else to save someone else. We see that maybe a fractured community could be healed by the voluntary atonement of one person who's willing to suffer the punishment that belongs to somebody else. We see the possibility of reconciliation, but it comes at enormous cost. And of all people, that Judah would be the one to make this staggering offer represents something he does not yet understand. Jesus is from the lineage of Jacob, through which son? Reuben the oldest? Joseph the good one? Benjamin the baby? No. Jesus is the line of the tribe of Judah. And Judah, without knowing it, is walking in the sacrificial steps of his greatest son, who's yet to come generations later. Now Joseph knows what he needs to know. Now this strange charade can end. Now his mask can come off. He asked all the Egyptians to leave the room so it's just him and his brothers. And this strong, resilient, powerful man who could not be broken by betrayal or enslavement or seduction or false accusation or imprisonment starts to weep uncontrollably and inconsolably. He cries so hard that the Egyptians could hear him sobbing through the thick walls of his palace. Friends, again, that's the power of reconciliation. And then comes the moment that no amount of commentary can possibly enrich. So let's just read it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. The exact Hebrew phrase looks like this. Ani Yosef. You think the people get scared at Universal's howl scream? <laughs> or Farmer Brown's corn maze of horror? Imagine being these guys. They're speechless. They're motionless. And the writer says this, but his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence, you think? Then Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. Joseph wanted his brothers to take a good look at his face and see beyond the Egyptian appearance, their Hebrew flesh and blood brother that they couldn't stand to look at 
or even say a kind word to when he was younger. And what they found impossible to believe at first, they were now forced to accept by the proof he gave them next. He said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. Folks, that's the best kept secret in Canaan. Surely none of these brothers ever dared disclose what happened that dark day in Dothan to anyone beyond themselves. And they stared at him, unable to blink as they contemplate the unthinkable. And then Joseph brings it home. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now, there's been famine in the land. For the next five years, there will be no plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. And as they say in the classic hokey pokey song, and that's what it's all about. Everything Joseph has been through, this is what it's all been about. Being favored and hated, being brutalized and betrayed, being sold and sold out. Being framed and forgotten, being remembered and elevated. Being in charge of everything except the deeply suppressed emotions of an abused teenager. All of it comes full circle in this one magnificent moment that changed not only their family and not only a nation, but all nations from this time forward forever. And it all hinges on these two words, but God. Everybody say those two words with me right now. But God. Say it one more time. But God. I told you in the first week of this series, I'm going to say it again as we close it out. If your take on God is right, your take on life can be right no matter what life takes. Joseph had so much taken away from him, his status, his family, his freedom, his reputation. And we read these accounts and we can't help but wonder why did bitterness never take root in that man's heart? It's because Joseph had a take on God that he would not allow circumstances to take away. And here it is. Here's his take. You intended something to harm me, but God intended it to heal me. And not only me, but you and your families and ultimately the entire world. And at the end of his life, we're going to jump ahead to Genesis 50. One more time, he summarizes his take on God that would sustain him no matter what life took. In the closing chapter of the book of Genesis, chapter 50, he's talking with his brothers who are fearful that Joseph will retaliate now that their father Jacob is dead. Imagine that. Why? One writer said it this way, because guilt clings to our souls like barnacles on a boat long after grace has come on board and began to steer. Man, that's good. And so one more time, he says these remarkable words to them. Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended for good to accomplish what's now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and he spoke kindly to them. Genesis scholar Derek Kidner says each sentence of this threefold reply is a pinnacle of Old Testament and New Testament faith. Take a look at these phrases. To leave all the writings of wrongs to God, Joseph said, Am I in the place of God? To see God's providing hand in man's malice. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. To repay evil not only with forgiveness, but with practical affection. I will provide for you and your children. And this is where we see most clearly the story of Joseph, the son of Jacob, points to the story of Jesus, the greatest son of Jacob. Because Joseph's life offers us 
one of the most powerful portrayals of God's grace outside the life of Jesus. Think about it. He came to his own. His own received him not. Instead, they rejected him, sold him for a few pieces of silver, stripped him of his special garment. The death we deserved, he accepted on our behalf. The punishment that brings us peace was put upon him. But here's a key difference you never should forget between Joseph and Jesus. Joseph was involuntarily turned into a savior through his suffering, but Jesus voluntarily came and chose to suffer as our savior. And when at last, by the stunning revelation of God's word, And the convicting power of the Holy Spirit, we come face to face with the one that we sinned against. We feel guilty. We feel ashamed. We fear the worst, just like Joseph's brothers. Only to read these amazing words of triumphant grace that Paul writes about to the Ephesian church. And at one time, all of us lived to please our old selves. We gave in to what our bodies and minds wanted. We were sinful from birth like all other people who would suffer from the anger of God. But God, there's those two words again. But God had so much loving kindness. He loved us with such a great love. Even when we were dead because of our sins, he made us alive by what Christ did for us. Friends, the one who was rejected is the same one who worked so hard to get us reconciled with God through him. So that we're not saved by our works, we're saved by grace through faith. And that's what's on offer to you today. We're going to sing in just a moment as we have sung these last two weeks that God turns graves into gardens. He turns bones into armies. He turns seas into highways. And in the story of Joseph, we've seen God turn a hated brother into a family savior. We've seen a forgotten prisoner becomes the prime minister. We've seen revenge get turned to reconciliation. We've seen bitterness get turned into blessing And a trauma meant to take something into a triumph meant to take over. What do you need to turn to him today? What do you need God to turn around in your life today? Let's pray about it. So, Father, we we are so in awe of your words and how well... They were written in this great story of Joseph. It's just, it's been masterful. And I thank you, Father, for the opportunity to to tell it. But more than that, I pray that many of us who need to understand the power of reconciliation today, first of all, reconciliation with you, and then maybe reconciliation with some other brothers and sisters, someone they've been estranged from, I pray we'll not just read it and marvel at it. I pray we'll apply it. I pray we'll walk in it. But God, thank you for those two words all throughout the Bible that tell us no matter what we've done, no matter how bad it looks, no matter how bad it gets, no matter how dark the night, no matter how messed up we are, but God, who is rich in mercy, who's full of love and kindness. Oh, Father, I pray that those words would wash over anybody in Apopka and Lake County online right now. Father, I pray that they would hear those words. But God loves them so much. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
If you like this podcast, we post a new message every week. So make sure to click that follow button and share it with your friends. Remember, Journey is a place where everybody's welcome, nobody's perfect, and through Jesus, anything is possible.